Welcome to Parents' Rights Now, a production of Parents' Rights in Education, hosted by Suzanne Gallagher. We are committed to valuing students, empowering parents, and supporting communities to secure great educations for public school children in America. PRE welcomes all students, families, and community members who care about scholastic success for K-12 public school students. Visit our website, parentsrightsined.org, and like us on Facebook. Join us by filling out the form on our website titled, Join Us. You will find information regarding issues and information about local and state chapters. Hey everybody, it's October 25th. If you haven't seen Christopher Rufo's latest article, The Real Story Behind Drag Queen Story Hour, aimed at children, the phenomenon is far more subversive than its defenders claim, I am going to share it with you today and maybe into next time. We have been reporting on this. I was looking up our past articles for uh, several years now, on and off, uh, because after all, we are headquartered in the armpit of gay, lesbian, transgender culture. And early on, people began questioning whether or not we should cover this. Should we talk about drag queen story hours? That isn't in the public school, Suzanne. Well, we are committed to protecting the rights of parents in K-12 public schools. And we're tackling this issue of LGBTQ agenda in public libraries because they are a public government agency serving children and families. An appreciation of literature at a young age is the first step to an education. However, grooming and indoctrination is not education. And that's what we see going on in the libraries. But now, of course, they are introducing it into the public schools. And I'm going to share with you part of an article that we published in 2019 regarding this subject. They're grooming preschool children to embrace the lifestyle. And they're doing it with our tax dollars. The Multnomah County Library in Oregon presented a drag queen story time free for kids ages two through six. Now, last time I checked, kindergarten starts at age five. So these events were held in Multnomah County Libraries in 2018, five times, and twice uh, up until the writing of this article in 2019. Quote, Portland's premier drag clown, Carla Rossi, with intellectual support from her human avatar, Anthony Hudson, attempts to chart the vast abyss of drag and its potential, addressing how drag's many varieties, flavors, and houses correspond to the unchartable spectrum of genders and sexuality. With supporting looks at its legendary elders, artists, and ancestors from two spirits and other gender shamans 
of the pre-settler North American continent and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to Marcia P., unquote. That is how this Drag Queen Story Hour was promoted. Okay, then on June 5th of 2021, the Oregon International School in Beaverton School District um, had a prom. Okay, June, that's prom time, isn't it? Drag queens at high school prom. This article states, you can't have a prom without prom pictures, right? Actually, that was a posting on Facebook. Love these pics from last night's fun at the International School of Beaverton. Thanks, Principal and Vice Principal Scott, math teacher Cindy, and mascot DeMarco the Dragon. I had so much fun. Now, this was posted by Kevin Cook, a regular performer at Darcell's Portland as Poison Water. Were the parents notified in advance? No. And you can bet this entertainer was booked for a slight fee. Pri is not supportive of drag queens or any other nightclub performers appearing at public school events. These professional adult performers usually appear on stage in nightclubs, not for minors. However, they are often asked to read in public libraries for story time, and they do lead something else, drag queen workshops for teenagers. And we have video footage of these workshop performers. Now, we have to understand that the goals are to recruit students into the gay, lesbian, transgender lifestyle. Then on November 6th of 2021, we wrote about a situation in Newburgh, Oregon. Uh, We sounded the alarm after several concerned parents alerted Pre to a video uploaded to social media by local political activists. The video, captured during a drag show, reveals adults giving cash to a student while the student performed in lingerie. Now, the student just turned 18 and currently attends Newburgh High School, where Kristen Stoller has been documented as counseling vulnerable student populations. Stoller is seen in the beginning of the video introducing the event as a political fundraiser to recall school board director Brian Shannon the vice chair of Newburgh School Board. This event was held at Stoller's Dance Studio, Chehalem Valley Dance Academy, home to one of Newburgh School District's after-school programs. What are they doing here? (laughs) They're, They're having a drag show to raise money to recall a conservative school board member. Now, additionally, Stoller apparently provides counseling to vulnerable student populations, through the Community Wellness Collective, which is a nonprofit health clinic inside Newburgh High School, though she is not a certified counselor, teacher, or school staffer. Through both programs, Stoller has had virtually unlimited access to students of all ages, and after recent events, parents are demanding answers. So let's unpack this story that written by Christopher Rufo, I have to tell you, he went into great detail about the history of drag performances and how it evolved into the story hour. We believe that the story hour is uh, camel's nose under the tent 
Um, but it is directed to preschool age children initially, and I'm sure that we're going to be seeing more and more introduction of uh, drag queens into school settings unless we stop it. This is what Christopher wrote. Drag Queen Story Hour, in which performers in drag read books to kids in libraries, schools, and bookstores, has become a cultural flashpoint. The political right has denounced these performances as sexual transgressions against children, while the political left has defended them as an expression of LGBTQ pride. Which one is it? Drag Queen Story Hour pitches itself as a family-friendly event to promote reading, tolerance, and inclusion. The organization's website reads, In spaces like this, kids are able to see people who defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a world where everyone can be their authentic selves. But many parents, even if reluctant to say it publicly, have an instinctual distrust of adult men in women's clothing, dancing and exploring sexual themes with their children. These concerns are justified, but to mount an effective opposition, one must first understand the sexual politics behind the glitter, sequins, and heels. And this requires a working knowledge of an extensive history, from the origin of the first queen of drag in the late 19th century to the development of academic queer theory, which provides the intellectual foundation for the modern Drag for Kids movement. The drag queen might appear as a comic figure, but he carries an utterly serious message. The deconstruction of sex, the reconstruction of child sexuality, and the subversion of middle-class family life. The ideology that drives this movement was born in the sex dungeons of San Francisco and incubated in the academy. It is now being transmitted with official state support in a number of public libraries and schools across the United States. By excavating the foundations of this ideology and sifting through the literature of its activists, parents and citizens can finally understand the new sexual politics and formulate a strategy for resisting it. So let's start with queer theory. The academic discipline born in 1984 with the publication of Gail Rubin's essay, Thinking Sex, Notes for a Radical Theory of the Politics of Sexuality. Bingo. They're right there, you guys. She's talking about a radical theory and politics. Beginning in the late 70s, Rubin, a lesbian writer and activist, had immersed herself in the subcultures of leather, bondage, orgies, fisting, and sadomasochism in San Francisco. Migrating through an ephemeral network of BDSM, that's bondage, domination, and sadomasochism, clubs, literary societies, and New Age spiritualist gatherings. In Thinking Sex, Rubin sought to reconcile her experiences in the sexual underworld with the broader forces of American society. 
Following the work of the French theorist Michel Foucault, Rubens sought to expose the power dynamics that shaped and repressed human sexual experience. Modern Western societies appraise sex acts according to a hierarchical system of sexual value, writes Rubin. Marital reproductive heterosexuals are alone at the top, erotic pyramid. Clamoring below are unmarried, monogamous heterosexuals in couples, followed by most other heterosexuals. Stable, long-term lesbian and gay male couples are verging on respectability, but bar dykes and promiscuous gay men are hovering just above the groups at the very bottom of the pyramid. The most despised sexual castes currently include transsexuals, transvestites, fetishites, sadomasochists, sex workers, such as prostitutes, and porn models. And the lowliest of all, those whose eroticism transgresses generational boundaries. Woo! That's a mouthful. Rubin's project, and by extension that of queer theory, was to interrogate, deconstruct, and subvert the sexual hierarchy and usher in a world beyond limits, much like the one she had experienced in San Francisco. The key mechanism for achieving this turn was the thesis of social construction. Quote, the new scholarship on sexual behavior has given sex a history and created constructivist alternative to the view that sex is a natural and pre-political phenomenon. She goes on to say, underlying this body of work is an assumption that sexuality is constituted in society and history, not biologically ordained. This does not mean the biological capacities are not prerequisites for human sexuality. It does mean that human sexuality is not comprehensible in purely biological terms. In other words, traditional conceptions of sex, regarding it as a natural behavior that reflects an unchanging order, are pure mythology designed to rationalize and justify systems of oppression. See that? Oh my goodness. This is all coming together with the critical race theory, people. Now for Rubin and later queer theorists, sex and gender were infinitely malleable. There was nothing permanent about human sexuality, which was, after all, political. Through a revolution of values, they believed the sexual hierarchy could be torn down and rebuilt in their image. There was some reason to believe that Rubin might be right. The sexual revolution had been conquering territory for two decades. The birth control pill, the liberalization of laws surrounding marriage and abortion, the intellectual movements of feminism and sex liberation, the culture that had emerged around Playboy magazine. By 1984, as Rubin acknowledged, stable homosexual couples 
had achieved a certain amount of respectability in society. But Reuben, the queer theorist, and the fetishites of the BDSM subculture wanted more. They believed that they were on the cusp of fundamentally transforming sexual norms. Now, let me depart from that for a second. I just want to remind you that uh, we talk about this frequently, the fact that um, CSE, or Comprehensive Sexuality Education, is committed to changing the culture. This is part of it. Rubin goes on to say that there are historical periods in which sexuality is more sharply contested and more overtly politicized. And in such periods, the domain of erotic life, in effect, renegotiated. Isn't that interesting how she uses this term, renegotiated? And following the practice of any good negotiator, they laid out their theory of the case and their maximum demands. Rubin explains a radical theory of sex must identify, describe, explain, and denounce erotic injustice and sexual oppression. Such a theory needs redefined conceptual tools which can grasp the subject and hold it in view. It must build rich descriptions of sexuality as it exists in society and history. It requires a convincing critical language that can convey the barbarity of sexual persecution. Once the ground is softened and the conventions are demystified, the sexual revolutionaries could do the work of rehabilitating the figures at the bottom of the hierarchy. And who are those people? Again, transsexuals, transvestites, fetishites, sadomasochists, and sex workers. Where does this process end? At its logical conclusion, the abolition of restrictions on the behavior at the bottom end of the moral spectrum. Wait for it. Pedophilia. Though she uses euphemisms such as boy lovers and men who love underage youth, Rubin makes her case clearly and emphatically in long passages throughout Thinking Sex. Rubin denounces the fears of child sex abuse as erotic hysteria, rails against anti child pornography laws argues for legalizing and normalizing the behavior of those whose eroticism transgresses generational boundaries. These men are not deviants, according to Rubin, but victims. She goes on, like communists and homosexuals in the 1950s, boy lovers are so stigmatized that it is difficult to find defenders for their civil liberties, let alone for their erotic orientation, she explains. Consequently, the police have feasted on them. Local police, the FBI, and watchdog postal inspectors have joined to build a huge apparatus whose sole aim is to wipe out the community of men who love underage youth. In 20 years or so, When some of the smoke is cleared, it will be much easier to show that these men have been the victims of a savage and undeserved witch hunt. 
Reuben wrote fondly of those primitive hunter-gatherer tribes in New Guinea in which boy love was practiced freely. Our time is up today, but this is revolutionary. They are admitting boy love, normal, not on my watch, and not on yours. We will continue this discussion next time. This is Parents' Rights Now. Please check your show notes for links pertinent to this podcast. Please consider making a monthly contribution to Parents' Rights in Education. We need your help. We have big plans in mind. And because of a very generous one-time contribution of $25,000, we are challenging our listeners and our readers, all of our supporters, to match that gives $12 a month. If there were only 500 of you, that would tally up to $6,000 a month, almost tripling the $25,000 check we just received in one year. Be part of that club. We call it the 12 by 12 club. A link to our website is in the show notes or go to parentsrightsined.org. See you soon.